Hello and welcome to the Hint Reviews podcast with Peter Hinton, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Sean Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the fourth interview podcast for the 2008-2009 international season. In each episode, we will take you into the intimate world of artists and the creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In them, artistic director Peter Hinton chats with a guest artist associated with the production. In this interview podcast, Peter speaks with designers E.O. Sharp, Robert Thompson, and Troy Slocum about their collaboration on Berry Child by Sam Shepard which ran in the NAC Theatre from January 7th to the 24th. For more information about the NAC Theatre Company's production of Fairy Child, please visit www.nac-cna.ca slash en slash theatre slash fairychild slash intro dot asp. And now, here are Peter Hinton, E.O. Sharp, Robert Thompson, and Troy Slocum. This afternoon's interview is a very uh, special one because uh, we have three artists who have worked uh, quite a few times here at the NAC and are vital to this production of Buried Child, and yet uh, they're not on stage physically. They are the designers and the design team of the production. Robert Thompson, the lighting designer, E.O. Sharp, set in costumes, and Troy Slocum, the sound designer. And um, before I invite you to welcome them here, I want to tell you a little bit about each of these artists. Starting with Troy. Uh, Troy is a Montreal-based sound designer, engineer, and composer. And he began designing sound for theatre on a production of a play called Girls, Girls, Girls by Greg MacArthur, which was directed by a fellow named Peter Hinton at the Montreal Fringe <laughs> in the year 2000, and it was later remounted at the Festival de Théâtre des Amériques. Since then, he's designed for numerous productions across Canada, including another play by Greg MacArthur, Snowman, uh, Hunted with Urban Ink Productions, Anatomy of the People by Henrik Ibsen, uh, A Doll's House, uh, Black Stone Bowl and The Ladysmith, for which he was nominated for a 2006 Mecca Award for Sound Design, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, A Giraffe in Paris for Geordie Productions, and previously at the NAC, you've heard Troy's work in our productions of Frida Kay and The Way of the World. Uh, recently, he designed the sound for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof at the Leonor and Alvin Siegel Theatre and Shape of a Girl for Geordie Productions. So please join me in welcoming Troy Slocum. Yeah, Troy. <laughs> Uh, right next to Troy is E.O. Sharp. E.O. also is based in Montreal. 
And last season at the National Arts Center, she designed our entire studio season. So those productions of And All for Love, Falstaff, and The Snow Show, which all looked so incredibly different, were all designed by EO. Um, she and I have worked together on many other projects. Uh, uh, most memorably, maybe for, for me, was uh, EO designed parts two and three of my play The Swan at the Stratford Festival. Uh, she designed The Dollhouse at the Leonor and Alvin Siegel Theatre, Snowman, Girls, Girls, Girls. And uh, she recently designed Pentecost at the Stratford Festival, Le Pleureux Designé at Theatre Prospero, and Johnny Canuck in the Last Burlesque at Mainline Theatre. She has a BFA Honours in Art History from the University of Toronto and is a graduate of the National Theatre School's Design Program in Montreal. Eo Sharp is a great collaborator, and I want you to welcome her here today. And last but certainly not least is Robert Thompson, who's one of Canada's most uh, respected and active lighting designers. Uh, for us at the NAC, he designed the lights for Macbeth, The Unanswered Questions, Sticks and Stones, Present Laughter. He has spent the past seven seasons designing extensively for the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, uh, where at Stratford, Rob and I worked together on productions of Taming of the Shrew, The Odyssey, Fanny Kemble, Into the Woods, and all three parts of The Swan. His other credits there include Romeo and Juliet, and he just recently lit the uh, production of Caesar and Cleopatra with uh, Christopher Plummer. Uh, he also lit Crap's Last Tape in Huey with Brian Dennehy. He was the resident lighting designer at the Shaw Festival for 24 seasons. Rob is 89 years old. <laughs> <laughs> at the Shaw, he directed, uh, did lights for St. Joan, Picnic, Cavalcade, Cyrano de Bergerac. 12 seasons as resident lighting designer for the National Ballet of Canada including over 25 ballets. Um, he has received numerous awards over his 30-year career, including a Sterling Award for Edmonton's opera mounting of Bluebeard's Castle under Vartung, directed by Robert Lepage, and four Dora Mavermore Awards. He is a member of the Associated Designers of Canada. He's a great friend and um, a fantastic designer, Robert Thompson. So um, how do I put this? Um, it took a little arm wrestling to get the three of you to come to talk to us today. <laughs> and um, part of that might be, I would maybe pr uh, presume, is because you're visual people who think with your hands, your ears, your eyes, and uh, it's a different forum to talk about what you do. Would you say that's... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Okay, it's going to be pulling teeth for the next 25 minutes. Um, I'll start with that favorite old question that always makes me roll my eyes. Uh, what, what took you to design? How did you end up designing for the theater? What, what drew you to it? Well, I think I'm, I'm one of those sort of classic stories where I got the bug when I was in high school and did, you know, musicals and... and um, I started working uh, in Toronto at Ontario Place for a summer job and met a lot of theatre students and um, was convinced to, you know, follow that career, I guess, and pure chance, I suppose. And, 
Yeah, I've been doing it for 30 years, so old guy. <laughs> Not 89, though. <laughs> and Troy? Um, I sort of found my way into it somewhat accidentally, actually, having met you, as you know. Uh, I started as a DJ, electronic musician, um, was making hip-hop music at the time, and uh, we I had met Peter through my girlfriend, who's an actor in Montreal, and uh, he asked me if he needed an urban soundtrack for a, uh, a play we were doing, and then after that, it just kind of took off from there. I kept getting calls, and did really well. We went on to the FTA with it, and... Uh, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. I had to be explained to how to do it when I first stepped into it because I had no education in it. But, yeah, it just kind of... And then I enjoyed it, so I kept doing it. It's interesting because there is no uh, one pursuit or mm -hmm. one way. Like Very three definitely. of you are yeah. a, a wonderful team to work with and yet come to it from such different uh, places and experiences and influences. What do you see as the role of the designer in a production? What is good design? You know, some people say, you shouldn't notice it. Or some people say, I really love the lights on that. Or what, what, is, the, what is good design to you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, at least as a lighting designer, I know that is that old adage that, you know, I didn't notice it, so it must have been good, which I must confess I'm not really that strong on. <laughs> You'll likely see that this afternoon. It's very subtle. But well it is subtle, but it's it's certainly there and it's a you know, I think all of our work with we were talking uh, before about how uh, how pleased we are that I think anyone's work really doesn't sort of stand above and it's very integrated and I think that's what's good design. I think this production is a fine example of what is really excellent design because the ideas come from all of us, you know. And Peter, you know, as as a design collaborator. I mean, we're being shown as these three designers, but in fact, it's the four of us, really. Yeah. And Peter, as a director, is one of the best at, you know, being a strong leader and uh, also a nurturer of uh, ideas. And, uh, and that is why we do it, I think, is that we, uh, I you know, love to bring ideas forward, but then, you know, by bouncing them off someone else that you, you know, evolve it or you know, the best one are the accidents that happen that suddenly, you know, Peter's great for this. You know, he's, oh, oh, take that away. That's perfect. You know, and you're, oh, yeah, okay. So there's a lot of, there's always a lot of Peter, I would say, in any of the design projects that I've been involved with. And uh, I always sort of feel like it's half his at least. So, uh, yeah. Well, I guess when I'm designing, I'm trying to tell the story in visual terms. And... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to tell, and, and I guess a lot of it for me is about actors moving through space and time. So what I'm doing with the spa space and how I'm designing the set has a lot of impact on how people move and where your eye is focusing, and the same with how you use color and where it causes you to focus. So I'm just trying to tell the story I've read exactly in visual, trying to translate it into visual terms. But I definitely do want to say something, like to have my two cents, if you will, in the story. And you know, I, I think I've talked before about when I was in theater school and we, we were taught that, you know, the um, a designer is like a good butler that's always there. <laughs> always seen but never heard. You know, the actor needs a cup, the cup is there. But I don't think that that's what design should be. I think that design should add another layer to the story. It, sh it should increase 
um, yeah, your understanding of the story. And I think that like this set particularly, like people keep saying to me, oh, it's a great set. And it's like, yeah, but the set doesn't exist without the lights. And it really doesn't. And you'll see when you see the show, but the two of them are, are completely together. Like one, I don't think the set stands on its own. The set stands with the lights. And that would be the same case with the lighting too. It's so, like yeah. the lighting wouldn't exist without the structures that, you know, EO yeah. created. So uh, we were both very opportunistic in yeah. what we gave each other, I would say, yeah. definitely. Now, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We like to think the that. The comment was made that the, <laughs> the light brings another layer to it, for sure. Troy, what about sound? What's good uh, sound design to you? As Rob was saying, I think it's often said that your job is to not be noticed, and if you're not noticed, then you've done your work. Uh, I agree with that to a certain extent, but I think that uh, it's whatever serves the story best without overwhelming it. That's basically, and it's really tough sometimes to find that or find the right underscore to a scene that's not going to lead the audience in one direction or the other. And I think the people who do it well don't impose too much of a stamp on it, but, uh -huh. but still bring another layer to it. And, and, well, I guess you all have this. Like I was going to say with Troy, there's a, a, a wide uh, demand that's put on you for a sound design because yeah. you're asked to create everything from, you know, barking dogs in the yard next door to... Yeah. The music that opens the third act. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a huge amount of stuff sometimes, and you have to be very zen about it. In a lot of ways, you you might spend all night composing something, and then it may or may not be used the next day. So you have to sort of learn to embrace that, <laughs> and also uh, it just it's just part of the game. And, and you know, you have to be willing to accept what something works or doesn't work too. If you get into a space and it's not what you had imagined originally, then you're you might go back to the drawing board and redo it, but. So it's, uh, and that and, you know, and all of the composed sound effects and anything else uh, on stage that needs to happen, localized sounds, telephones, basic things like that. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's pretty all-encompassing, but it's a lot of fun. So. Uh, Troy once told me a story about working with the director on a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, where he, he, he went through something like a hundred different doorbell chimes. Yeah. To find the one that the director wanted that yeah. was period, comic... That was, a special, uh, right for the play. that was a special case. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what, are, what are some of the challenges that you have in a design? Like, I mean, we come in and we get to see it all realized. What are some of the challenges that the audience might not be aware of that come? Uh, I'm always amazed by the, sh the amount of time you have. Mm -hmm. But how long is it before you get to see a run-through in a rehearsal hall yeah. till when you're demanded to? I mean, it's interesting. We have different patterns. I would say, you know, set and costumes, you know, their process, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, usually starts well in advance of the start of rehearsal, which I'm in awe of because the, the landscape of the production is being created by the you know, set, and, and in particular the set, and obviously the costumes because they have to be built in advance. And, you know, when, when I arrive, the set is virtually built and was in the process of painting. I think Troy, as a sound designer, and myself as a lighting designer, we're, we're on a similar timeline where our process tends to be more linked with the rehearsal hall, where, as I say, the set and costumes, those decisions and that planning process is you know, something that the director and the designer do in advance. And, and in some places, you're working six months in advance, which I just don't know how you can possibly do that, quite frankly. But um, I mean, I find my process doesn't really begin other than consultation, perhaps, but uh, 
it doesn't really begin until the rehearsals start or until I arrive in the rehearsal process and I find that it's um, I don't think it's possible to see enough rehearsal as a as a lighting designer definitely so all those ideas and seeing people moving in a rehearsal hall which is just this empty you know room with no scenic elements at all so you're relying on your own imagination in terms of seeing people moving through space but it's all about I find that you know seeing how the intent of you know, blocking and movements, and also listening to, you know, the director talking to the actors. Oftentimes I find that I learn more from listening to those conversations than necessarily a lighting meeting as such. I mean, we it varies from director to director, and some don't really do them, in fact, so you get all of your ideas from just listening to them. And I've always sort of found that my journey more and more, the more I do it in a funny way, I feel like I'm just another one of the actors who's, you know, in that journey to try to discover what it is that, you know, I have to bring, and then usually cramming it out in the last couple of days to try to do my planning process before we start hanging all the lights in the theater. But uh, I don't know, I'm always in awe of people who create their lighting plots and send things in in advance of seeing rehearsal. I find it very difficult to do that. And I don't really want to do it, quite frankly. But Well, I guess I started in June having meetings with you. I think in October I sent my preliminary designs in, which is the first model and the first costume sketches. And then I think my final deadlines were in November sometime. And in fact, in this case, Rob phoned me and said, oh, there were changes that he wanted for, for lighting angles. And so I actually revised and handed my finals in late so to accommodate those changes. And so I think I handed my final designs in mid-November. The set, we started building it a week before rehearsals start, which isn't true of all theaters. I prefer it when everything starts at the same time. But the first day of I do think that often in the rehearsal process, there are changes that come about. And because it's already built, it makes it less hard to accommodate changes if we, if we need to. I mean, we didn't in this case, but, but I do prefer that it all starts at the same time. I like to get meetings in as early as possible because I will use every minute, every hour I can leading up to the rehearsal period just so I have a good stock of sounds to, uh, to build on and a good sort of palette to work with, and that's how I like to do it. And I'm the kind of person I don't always know what I'm going to do until I do it, and when it feels right is when, it's, when I know it's right. So I just like to have that advanced time material. In this case, it was a little bit later than usual because we were both really busy and our schedules were. I was working on finishing a couple of shows in Montreal before I came here, and uh, it actually happened, a lot of it here, well, well, during the rehearsal period is when I did my composing and in the hotel room, some late nights with my keyboard, and yeah, it, uh, but it worked out good, I think, hopefully. Well, you'll find out today. <laughs> you can tell me now, after. Sam Shepard presents some pretty challenging things in this play, and that is different than uh, another play. On one level, it's naturalistic. It, it's a farmhouse in Illinois. It has windows, doors, a couch, a TV set, and yet... It asks that the TV set make no sound. It uh, is very elusive. What were what specifically to Barry Child were the challenges in the design, or some of the things that intrigued you, or frustrated you, or? Um. Well, I guess what was sort of difficult, but it was sort of the most. There's a very elusive nature to the text, and the, there's a lot of ideas thrown around about memory, and memory and amnesia, I think, are kind of in conflict in the play. And, and so, yeah, I think it was those ideas that, 
it was the hardest to get, but it was that essence that I wanted of, uh, of things that have been obliterated, but at the same time, in the obliteration, you can read what was once there. And it was that quality that I wanted to get in the set. So I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what, what that was. And I guess we were looking at the Edward Hopper mm -hmm. paintings. And when I realized how a lot of them didn't make architectural sense, although they appeared to be realistic, when you spent a lot of time looking at them, the architecture is very simplified. That was a quality that I wanted to catch. It was how to catch those ideas, turn those ideas into memory, into the set, like make it into the set. Yeah. That I found difficult. Do you know this painter, Edward Hopper, American painter, you know, Nighthawks? Yeah. They're very interesting because they, you look at them and they look totally real. Yeah. And yet when you examine them closely, Yeah, we realize, yeah, there's like the frame, windows are just holes. There's no molding or anything like that. No and glass? So I, no glass. Them, yeah. So there's a lot of things, like in the set, there's no glass in the windows. There's a lot of simplification of the architecture. There's no moldings around. The carpenters kept saying, but what kind of molding do you want around the windows? I was like, there's no molding. <laughs> there's no baseboard. There was a lot of details like that that are just not there, but I, I did that on purpose. Also, the lack of props, the furniture, yeah. it's so sparse. It's a huge room, 44 feet wide, something in that nature. Yeah. And uh, like the proportions are really interesting, very letterbox wide and, and low, but it's a huge room. And really, there's almost no furniture other than a couch. And, and, and it's spectacular, the power of that visual space, I have to say, and certainly in terms of my work, but I just adore watching this room it's, and what happens inside it. And we looked at a lot. P Peter brought a lot of different uh, artists' work and um, into the rehearsal hall. And um, I think it's one of the things that I love about um, you know working with Peter because of his research and panoramas, which a lot of it's in the lobby, not all of it, but a huge amount of it is in the lobby. When you're going in, you can see some of the influences. And uh, Peter brought uh, Gregory Crudson's photographs in. There was a big display of those, which I have to confess I'd not seen his work before. And, um, we used a lot of that kind of imagery uh, in terms of the sort of theatricality of it, but at the same time, it's, there's always something very twisted about it. And yeah. I don't know, how would you, you know, typify his photographs? It's well, they're they're like realist reconstructions of scenes. They're very theatrical. They're photographs of like a, a motel room, photographs from the outside, a woman and a baby on the bed in the motel room, and the door is open in the middle of winter. They're, yeah. they're mysterious. You know, something has happened or is about to happen, and so yeah. they carried that sort of memory, amnesia, realism, yeah. surrealism quality that the play has. It was quite perfect, really. I think we uh, we pulled from that kind of idea a lot, and there's uh, something impending in that stillness, yeah. even though they're photographs, and you know. You look at certain photographs where you feel the sense that there's motion and that there, you know, there's a, a moment captured, but there's something that's likely happening at that you know, two-second moment that at that snap took place. Whereas these, they are just absolutely sort of still, but the power that they bring is, is quite, quite extraordinary. I was really uh, quite intrigued by them. Mm -hmm. What about you, Troy? Were there specific things about the shepherd that... Um, in terms of challenges or, play or yeah, I think it was, well, I think we discussed initially was how much sound are we going to pack into it? Cause it could be because of the sort of bizarre nature of some of the characters in the writing. It's one of those things you could pack full of very strange ambient sounds or where we were going to 
it subtle and take advantage of the sort of naturalistic elements and the nature sounds and stuff that you farm. And uh, I think what we tried to focus on was the concept of the fact that the sound itself is actually buried without getting yeah. into or ruining anything in the show, but that's kind of what we were going with. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think it was, we found a good balance, I think, in terms of not overwhelming and just keeping it very subtle. And Yeah. Yeah. That, was, that was the, the challenge. The that was challenge. also interesting for all of us, and is that you know we had certain ideas that we all you know brought, and uh, once we moved into the theater and started our our work, we all kind of discovered how far we could go, and it was very linked in that yeah. way. And uh, you know we uh, we all had certain thoughts that we thought you know we would try, and some of them proved to be more powerful than maybe we had anticipated, and others we pulled back on and. Uh, I think it was a parallel course that way. That yeah, it was really organic. That yeah, way. yeah, which is again why I think when you look at the production, ultimately, where we that line that we landed on, we all landed on it together, and hopefully, it, it seems you know effortless and all integrated, or or not. But hopefully, <laughs> that's the way we feel anyway. Yeah. 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 Yeah, on this show I was actually asked a couple of sound questions because I have a creaking door and a creaky floor. Yeah. So people would ask me, is the floor too creaky? And it would totally send me into a panic. It's like, that's not my area. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about a sound before. <laughs> when, the, when the door, one of the doors got installed, it made this fabulous, you know, every time it opened. And it was, we all went, we love the door. We want to keep the creaky door. Then the next day, well, not that creaky. <laughs> Only selectively creaky. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to leave on. <laughs> right on. Well, I want to uh, thank again Troy, EO, and Rob for joining us this afternoon and uh, welcome you to the show and uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much. That's all for this fourth Hinterviews podcast of the 2008-2009 season. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting www.nac-cna.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast sections of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. If you'd like to stay in touch with news and updates from the NAC English Theatre, sign up for a free e-bulletin by visiting www.nac-cna.ca slash email alerts. That's E-M-A-I-L-A-L-E-R-T-S. You can also find us on Facebook. Become a fan of the NAC English Theatre on Facebook by entering NAC English Theatre into the search bar. Until next time, this is Sean Fitzpatrick for Peter Hinton and Company saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa.